Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery, people sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. Welcome back to Progressive Recovery. It's a pleasure to have you. And we're talking with Nathan today, who if you saw him, you would immediately notice the twinkle in his eyes. And well, he's a lumber sexual. He's got that beard that we all all hear about. It's a big bushy beard. I do. He's a very pleasant fellow who's got a whole lot of experience to share with us. So before we jump into the content, which you can be clear in the channel when we get there, tell our listeners a little bit about your story. How, How is it you've arrived here? Uh, well, I am not the alcoholic that uh, people talk about in meetings who, at 15, they uh, guzzled a bottle of bourbon and wrecked a car and blacked out and all that sort of stuff. But I uh, didn't drink much while I was growing up. I had a fairly normal upbringing. We moved around a lot. Uh, so I think that sort of built into me a sense of isolation and sort of waiting to be invited to do things. But um, I, the drinking as a, in high school was minimal. I was in a dry county. I didn't want to deal with the bootleggers. <laughs> in Alabama. And um, so I, uh, when I got off to college, I started drinking. It wasn't ridiculous, but, you know, I had my night with hurricanes in Tuscaloosa and my night with peppermint schnapps. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I can remember really awful experiences with very, very specific yeah. things. But um, when I came out as gay at 27, uh, I ended up with a roommate who um, was a very social person. And I'm not all that social a person. And he sort of taught me bar skills bar skills bar skills bar bar yeah like how to how to hang out with people and how to smile how to be at ease how to you know just have a drink or two and then things would calm down and then you'd be very social and so i did that for a long time um progressively getting more and worse and more and worse um but uh, eventually in 1991 uh, i got my first dui uh, it was a very minimal DUI. It wasn't a huge number or anything like that. It's sort of the warning DUI. And some people use that as an opportunity to change what they do. And I went back to the bar and um, told everybody there my DUI story. And they told me their DUI story. And I was home. <laughs> it was, you know, it was, I belonged, <laughs> I belonged again. You know, uh, I remember uh, pouring out uh, two thirds of a bottle of Jack Daniels uh, during that first DUI experience. And it uh, felt so bad. I've never done that again. <laughs> and I do remember that well, a friend at work offered to take me to a meeting. Another friend gave me a big book, a meeting, an AA meeting. Got it. And another friend uh, gave me a big book, a little paperback-sized one. But that was not what I was looking for. I was going to keep drinking. And you did. And I did. And DUI number two came along in 1995. And that one got my attention a little bit. 
Um, I drove over to uh, the parking lot at Galano, the gay clubhouse uh, here in Atlanta, and um, then uh, sat in the parking lot for about five minutes and then drove off. Uh, I like to say that my uh, heart wanted help, but my head was too big to fit through that door. <laughs> uh, but I asked around, and a friend uh, who knows all things New Age and spiritual said, well, you should try meditation. Here's a good place to go. So I went to a Buddhist place in Atlanta and meditated for the next five or six years. You know, did a, did all the retreats you can do in town and went off and did some of the advanced retreats and uh, really took to it. And uh, not the least of which reasons is that uh, they drink there at that place too um i could the buddhists the buddhists yes it came comes from a tradition that has a history of sort of converting hippies into buddhists <laughs> and uh so uh there would be the weekend of meditation and then afterward there'd be a feast and i would have wine my first actual retroactively retroactively realized experience of uh restless irritable and discontented was from um sitting all weekend, then drinking, and then not being able to stay in, not being able to just go home, uh, but mm -hmm. always going out afterwards to the to the bar. Um, I uh, discovered after the fact that all three of my DUIs, spoiler alert, there's another DUI coming. Um, <laughs> the, the, all three of my DUIs were driving home from the same bar. Huh. You know, and well, so... Coincidental. Oh, of course. It certainly <laughs> is coincidental. It couldn't have anything to do with loneliness and drinking and going mm. to this place to try to meet people and or get laid. Uh, yeah. You know, it was all tied together. Yeah. And it was getting tied tire, you know, as this went on. I hadn't shown any of the... Things you would expect to see in an alcoholic. I hadn't lost a fan, my family's goodwill. I hadn't lost my job. I hadn't lost my home. I hadn't lost my health. My liver was still doing fine. Uh, but um, there were clearly problems going on. So you didn't have the typical kind of bottom we often hear about, the in the gutter, wrecked a car, killed somebody, the kind of tragic stuff we so often hear. I didn't. Uh, I do believe that bottoms can be emotional. In addition ah, yeah. to being, you know, financial or physical or, you know, various different kinds. And um, it took the third DUI for um, the emotional uh, bottom to become such that I had to stop mm -hmm. and I had to do something different. I tend to have a very high opinion of my opinions. And uh, it took, I often have to be told three times that I'm wrong to mm. believe that I'm wrong. <laughs> and here comes the third DUI, you know, yeah. six years after that, two, uh, September 1st, 2001. He was driving mm. home from the same bar. He was supposed to meet somebody there. He didn't show up. That got there earlier than usual, drank an extra beer at the beginning and a shooter at the end on the way out the door. And uh, then I got pulled over. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there you go again. Hmm. You know, I remember the feeling of walking home. From, I live close enough to the jail to walk home from it in DeKalb County. And I walked home in the drizzling rain on September 2nd, and I was completely um, lost. Hmm. Lost. I had physically. no idea what to do. I was, okay. you know, Got it. I, my uh, sense that uh, what I had been thinking about myself was not true. That I was not. I, I'm. When when you reach that point, when you reach that bottom, then you start rethinking everything that you believed before. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. Uh, I, I though I would sometimes when I was drunk, you know, say that. And you're a fucking alcoholic, you know, just in yeah. under muttering under your breath, but not enough of a you know, majority opinion <laughs> in my mind to get me to go, you know, yeah. to AA. The third DUI. Um, 
happened. And then um, if you look at the click of the calendar, 10 days after that, 9-11 happened. And my last drink was on 9-12. I was, uh, it seemed like another good night to go buy a bottle of bourbon. Yeah. So I uh, went to the package store near my house and then went home and watched all that stuff on TV and drank. I, had, I don't think I, had, I did, hadn't drunk much for over that 10 days. Uh, but I had drained all the alcohol in the house. And um, so here it was again. And um, felt so bad the next day, I had to go in and learn a software program at work. And uh, the person teaching me was a little cranky. And I just felt so bad I didn't drink. And then the next day I went to my attorney. And all sorts of odd things started happening after that. Hmm. Um, she was right there, uh, like, Five minutes from my house, I had picked somebody nearby. All of my other attorneys, I didn't want to go back to. <laughs> when you start monitoring the quality of your DUI attorneys, that's another sign <laughs> that there might be something going on. Uh, but so I picked her, and she said, "I want to send you all the way across town to this alcohol counselor who writes my reports in a way that causes you not to lose your driver's license." And this is who he is. And I said, "Oh, I know him." all the way across town and she picked somebody who I know from all of the other spiritual stuff that I've been doing. I've been doing a ton of uh, gay spiritual stuff in the 1990s, uh, working with a group called Gay Spirit Visions and then working with a group called Body Electric and doing all sorts of healing stuff for gay men who at that time had absolutely no image of what a spiritual gay man looked like. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, it was really uh, important work for me. And mm -hmm. here is somebody from that group who is going to tell me whether I'm an alcoholic or not. Mm -hmm. I might be the only person in the world I might believe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I took the test and he said, uh, borderline alcoholic, three meetings a week to look good to the judge. And so that's why I went. To, to improve your appearance. To improve my appearance to the judge. Interestingly yeah. enough, um, because of my other stuff that I had been doing, I had paid for a massage that I had to cancel on. And so I finally scheduled it that day as I left the um, attorney's office. And um, when I went to see, to get the massage on Sunday night, it was someone who had been in recovery for eight years, sober for two, and said, well, if he tells you to go to a meeting tomorrow, you might try this one at Galana. Hmm. And I did. And... Um, that was my first meeting, mm -hmm. and it was um, nothing special, but it made me feel better. A new community. A new community of people to connect to and people who were um, looking to help people. And mm -hmm. I can tell you that uh, I had nothing but anxiety those first four months. Uh, I'm anxiously prone anyway, but I had nothing but anxiety during that time, and the only time it went away was at meetings. And so I did a ton of meetings. You know, I, the, I, when I went to court four months later, um, I uh, had 142 signatures on the pieces of paper that my attorney gave me to record them on. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, does doing this much AA help? And she said, I don't know. I've never had anybody do this much AA. <laughs> <laughs> but it did help. I didn't lose my license after the fact. And I didn't, I, the only time I spent in jail was the minimum amount that I still had to do, an extra 12 hours on top of the 12 that I spent when I first went in. And I could always get to meetings. I still was able to drive. So um, that was, a, it was all a great gift. It was all a great gift that I didn't seem to think that I wanted. Substitution therapy from a community at the bar to a community in AA. You know, and it worked. 
Yeah, it worked. I uh, I have one white chip, and I have uh, white chip. Uh, it's what you uh, take when you come into recovery. Uh, when okay. you say you want to try to start this way of life, and I've never felt the need to go out and drink. I've never actually felt it to a level where I went out <laughs> to drink. <Yeah. laughs> you know, you can feel it sometimes, but it, your mind almost has to get to a majority decision. You know, to go do it, and it never did for me. Excellent. Well, let's talk about clearing the channel, which okay. is language that I think some of our listeners will be surprised to hear, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's okay. give a little bit of frame of reference and okay. sort of set here with uh, what, what precedes this. And in previous sessions, we've talked about powerlessness, which is the starting point for seemingly all of us. Mm-hmm. We've talked about hope and surrender, or what we would call in the recovery rooms, uh, steps two and steps three. We find some hope. We find a way to surrender. And then we arrive at steps four and five, which is where we take stock of ourselves, looking for what you labeled in one of our conversations is the places where we don't have any integrity, Mm -hmm. where we're out of balance and where we need something to be different. Mm -hmm. And then that sets up these steps six, seven, and eight, which you've labeled clearing the channel. So what do we mean by clearing the channel? What's the summary statement on that, Nathan? Well, I want to back up just a little bit. When you use the word integrity, that comes from uh, the principles that were on the walls at both of the meetings that I considered home groups when I first came mm-hmm. in. Uh, and um, no one actually can tell you where they came from other than Hazelden, mm-hmm. uh, a publishing uh, house and recovery center up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's a principle that's associated with each step that you are. That's what you're supposed to experience when you work the step. Mm-hmm. So that when in the 12th step it says practice these principles in all our affairs, mm-hmm. they're sort of your toolkit of principles that I think you're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. And um, when it says integrity, I sort of translate into the, that into the word integration. Because what you want to do is take all these parts of your personality that you've discovered by doing the fifth step and integrate them into one person and maybe modify the ones that are not working and discard the ones that are obsolete and um, pull them together into a person who, uh, the way I like to say it is that you can be the same person everywhere you go. You don't have to put on a different mask when you go home to your parents or a different mask when you go into work or Mm -hmm. that you're just, you're integrated. Yeah. And so I think that steps four and five are designed to help us create that kind of ideal. And then I think six, seven, and eight are designed to sort of clear away the obstacles that keep us from being that person so that that stuff can just sort of come together naturally. I don't think you can force it together, but I think you can let it coalesce. So does that that make sense? It does. Is that saying like when the obstacles are removed, when the channel's clear? The channel is clear. Then this wholer, more integrated self is what you're left with, presumably one with a whole lot less distress and trouble and the need to drink. Yes, so more ease and comfort in going through life so that you don't need the ease and comfort of Mm -hmm. alcohol. The big oh, that's excellent. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so the the the, the, the booze yeah. gives you mm-hmm. ease and comfort you've been looking for for like in your story a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, clearing the channel, I sort of picked this up out of the St. Francis prayer, which is in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book. Bill mm-hmm. gives it an, as an example of a really good prayer that people can use, mm-hmm. you know, and it begins with the phrase, make me a channel of thy peace. 
And uh, it became much easier for me to work with it from my Buddhist context if I took the word thy out. Make, <laughs> right, right. Make me a channel of peace. Uh, that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. So we're making a way for... Yes, as opposed to what happens where there is discord. Let me pile on, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We have a long history of not behaving in this way, I think, when we're we're not in recovery. And these are great things for us to aspire to. And I really think you just have to clear the channel of all the things Mm -hmm. that keep you from being that person. Buddhism would say that you have a basic goodness to yourself or a, a, a Buddha nature a, 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 that we're basically fixed as we are. And it's the obstructions in the channel that um, prevent us, prevent people from seeing that, prevent us from behaving that way. And if you can clear the channel of the things that um, make you crazy, then um, what you're doing is helping to bring the best you that you can to mm-hmm. the world every day. And that's what lots of people said they want to do. Mm-hmm. So clearing the channel. Mm-hmm. In the step six piece, step six is essentially... Well, it's willingness is the Hazelden principle that's associated okay. with it. And basically it comes right out of that integrity or integration piece. You know, now you've got this whole list of, of character defects. Which one Character are defects? Issues that have caused you problems over the years, okay. habits and behaviors that cause you difficulty and pain, uh, things that prevent you from being that person. Um, and so... Which one of them are you willing to work on? Mm-hmm. Willingness. Ah, yes. Oh, well, you're, you're right. <laughs> so, so talk to us about this willingness that comes in this sixth step, this willingness to be different. Okay. Well, I think that um, when you when the big book was written, the big uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the book that described the first hundred alcoholics getting sober, um, there wasn't a need to create much willingness there. You know, they had been the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. You know, they had gone to the last house on the block to try to get help. There was no other place to go. And so when they got to step six, they were entirely ready to have all these character defects removed. You know, um, for me, I hadn't been down that block as far. And so it became really interesting for me to see what made me willing to do stuff. You know, often what makes you willing is how awful it's become. Mm-hmm. You know, how horrible, you know, I'm going to do anything. I'm going to reach for that life preserver as only the dying can reach for it. Um, and for people who haven't gone as far down, that willingness sort of needs to be nurtured and paid attention to. And, um, you know, none of these things that you find in your fifth step are going to get dealt with unless you're willing to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So did you struggle with finding willingness? Do you struggle with finding willingness? I, I tell people that when I first worked this step, I spent a lot of time on step six and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I would look at step seven and I would still be doing the same things I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I would still, the character defects that were exposed were still doing what they were doing. Procrastination is the one that's on the top of my list. It is real easy for me to put off doing things that don't seem to have any urgency to them, mm-hmm. you know? And then um, it sort of builds in a feedback loop of once you've put it off, when do you ever get enough willingness to go back and pick it up again? 
Mm. You can find that with paying bills. I found that when I'm nervous about a bill, when I am, if I open it as I'm walking back into the house, it's open. And uh, if I put it on the desk, Mm. Who knows when it's going to get open? Mm. <laughs> Who knows when I'm going to find the courage to look at that again? Because I've took the time to think about it. And thinking is often, uh, you know, thinking keeps me from acting sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the great gift that Buddhism has given me is less thinking, more space between the thoughts, more opportunity to just open it and look. Oh, well, that's what it is. Thanks. You know, instead of, um, I wonder what's in there. This sounds like an intensely practical way of thinking about willingness. I mean, when you we mm-hmm. boil it down to just tear the envelope open now because I may not be able to deal with it later. I mean, that's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that I think that what's useful in these are you develop just ongoing little habits that become a little snowball that keep going, and the ongoing little habit, the ongoing habit for little things then gets applied to the ongoing habit for bigger things as you get more mm. in the habit of doing it. I think it, it's habit. Mm. It's creating good habits to replace the bad habits that were there before. Mm. I think a lot of the stuff dealing with willingness is, um, for me, it's procrastination that's backed by fear. You know, that mm-hmm. the procrastination is a way of keeping the fear over there on the other side of the room. If I don't ever get any closer to it, I'm never going to feel it any more intensely than I feel it right now, you know, until it blows up. So it's, all, it's, almost, <laughs> it, it's almost like taking the fear on then just one little tiny chunk at a time. Mm-hmm. While it's manageable, while it's yeah. there for you to be able to, yeah. to so, deal with. So you kind of live this willingness practice, this six-step willingness practice day in, day out, or that's what you aspire to. I do. I tried. I developed sort of a willingness meter. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, it, willingness, I think, functions like a rheostat or a dimmer switch mm-hmm. in a kitchen, in a dining room, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the more you can always have a little more willingness if you bring enough attention to the idea that this is a willingness issue that's going on. The big book even, or the 12 and 12 talks about it in step three, where it uh, talks about willingness and says you just have to open the door a little bit. And then it can always be opened a little more, but Mm -hmm. it's that first little opening of the door. That's the image they use. But I like the, not a dimmer switch, but a brightener switch. (laughs) I think you can brighten your willingness. And part of it is just knowing that what you're dealing with is a willingness issue. Mm -hmm. If I'm having trouble doing something, and I look at it, and I think that I am 40% willing to do this. You know, I want to. I'm not sure why I'm not getting over the hump. It's not like it's 20%. It's not like I wanted to stay over in the corner and never get anywhere near me. But um, if it's a 40%, then just noticing that it's a 40% can almost bring it up to a 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there is this sort of range, it seems like to me, like if if you're 20 percent willing to do something, you're not going to do it until the late fee is going to hit you or something mm-hmm. like that. If you're 80 percent willing to do things, you just go and do it unless something stops you. You know, you just go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. You don't worry about am I willing to go to the grocery store? Some things can affect that. Like, is it raining outside? You know, or, you know, do I want to go to that other store that I don't want to drive to tonight? You know, the whole willingness thing becomes a weighing of of um, percentages and inhibitions and things like that. I saw it when I was uh, not so early in recovery and trying to decide whether to go to a meeting. 
And I would start running through those things as, am I going to go to the meeting tonight? Well, it's raining outside. I don't want to drive through the rain. But that cute guy is going to be there. But that awful woman is going to be there. <laughs> but, you know, if I go, don't go tonight. I'll have to go tomorrow. Oh, it's somebody. Oh, she's talking tonight. I got to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and once I got, once the willingness meter went over 50, I went. And sort of the way it goes is you try to get your willingness meter over 50% or you just put off deciding until it's too late and the decision's made for you. But using this, this is really an awareness technique because it's awareness that you're bringing to your procrastination or is it a resentment why you don't want to go? Is it primarily you don't want to see that woman and that's why you don't want to go? Once you sort of bring awareness to all of this, you can work with it. But if you don't, you just sit there. At least I just sit there. That's what I do. Yeah. Then with the willingness comes the ability to get to the step seven, Mm -hmm. which is asking a higher power for help as it's classically understood in in, in the 12 steps. Once you're you're willing to be willing, you know, uh, that's, you hear that in in meetings a lot, but that's really, you know, that's the sort of second level of of willingness. Once you're willing to be willing with something, then what are you going to use it on? Mm-hmm. And in the seventh step, what you want to use it on are all those really strong opinions that you have about stuff. Mm-hmm. All those uh, people you hate. All those foods you hate. All those behaviors you hate in traffic. Mm-hmm. All those things that cause that feeling to come up in you that somebody's not doing it right, that this isn't the way things should be, that this is awful. You know, because I think lots of those are the reasons that we behave badly. I think lots of those, when we see somebody who we don't like doing something we don't like, how are we ever going to be nice to them? How are we ever going to adjust how we feel about them? And you have to be willing to do that. So I think that all of these, Buddhism talks about how dangerous it is to have a rigid mind. And I think all of these are things that we came to believe maybe decades ago that um, we don't, may not be serving us well now. And, uh, but when are we ever going to look at them? When you get to step seven is when you're going to look at them. I mean, if you're willing to look at all of these things that you believe and sort of put them on the table, then you can get in the habit of having a less rigid belief system that's going to mess you up when the bad things happen. Does that make sense? It does. I'm real curious now, because if, if you're less rigid, if it opens some space up, if the channel is getting cleared, does that mean that this power then flows? It can get to you? I believe that you stop thinking so much mm-hmm. and you start feeling more. And I believe that's where that power can be felt. I believe that for me, I know I'm one of these people who does get really stuck in my head. And I know a lot of people in recovery do. And um, those really strong opinions that I have about the opinions that I've created all these years um, really cause you don't know what you're missing when you treat a person badly because they didn't hold the door for you when you were coming in the store. And you just kind of growl at them. If you'd smiled at them, the world would be different. And who knows? I mean, I've had an amazing series of experiences where just smiling at someone in the world um, can change their day and mine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really important that just those little micro interactions that we have with people can be so crucial in changing the way a day feels, the way the world feels, the way my life feels. 
Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. I think a word you used, not now, but when we were talking beforehand, mm -hmm. this creates a kind of humility, right-sizedness. Am I remembering it, it correctly? It does. Humility, if you look at it, I've been to a lot of really bad meetings about humility <laughs> over the years. And I think that the only thing that I that um, have heard in all these meetings that is useful is I'm, I'm more teachable. Mm. There's less of me believing I know what's going to happen in the world and more of me coming to a situation looking to see what I can learn from it. So that in itself becomes its own little snowball. It does. A little bit of willingness opens up a little bit of humility, opens up your mind, a little bit more falls upon you, and, and slowly but surely. The world changes. Yeah. And I really do think that the world changes just by the way we smile at people, the way we look at people, the way we think about people. Mm -hmm. I think that um, we don't know what we're foreclosing from ourselves when we don't do that. Mm -hmm. How do those then set up the eighth step? I don't even know what the principle is you're going to use, but the eighth step for our listeners is you make a list of people you've harmed because you're getting ready to get set up for making those things right. And then you become willing to make amends to them all. And that is the hidden bomb at the bottom of the eighth step. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? How do you become willing to put this into a specific context? And I think that once, if you've done this and you've started looking at your behavior and your micro moments of availability in the world, then when you get to thinking about Aunt, Jen, Aunt Jenny and how awful she was to you at your confirmation, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you've treated her that way all these years, then you might be able to find a little compassion for her. Yeah. You might be able to see that you've been doing equally bad stuff all this time. You might find that the fact that she stayed in touch with you even after you've treated her the way she has can bring a little loving kindness up about her, and you might be able to forgive her for being human. Mm -hmm. And But you see how this technique can be applied to a specific person. You know, once you've got the tools of looking at... Um, of sort of unpacking your behavior and your opinions, then you can unpack your opinion about Angie. And when you go to her, she's not going to see that person who, even though you're not trying to show it to her, hates her yeah. <laughs> and has for 20 years and wishes that uh, you didn't have to go hang out with her on a Sunday afternoon. She's going to see somebody who um, is going to maybe go up and give her a hug. I've heard some say that this thing you're talking about basically opens us up to this higher power, but I also know, though you haven't mentioned it, you did before, that mm -hmm. you're an agnostic. Yeah, um, I have had all of these amazing experiences happen. Like just, just I had three or four other pretty amazing things happen early in recovery, similar to the one of my attorney sending me mm -hmm. 30 miles across town to somebody I knew. Mm -hmm. And while I don't want to believe in things that have an enormous, irrational, unprovable, miraculous quality to them. I've experienced them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that takes me to that I don't know place, mm -hmm. which is what agnosticism means. It means I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this entire process of clearing the channel doesn't require me um, to make a channel for thy peace. Uh, I can make a channel for peace. And I think that it it has the same effect of trying to create good in the world rather than just mm -hmm. being another person who piles on when there's an opportunity to. Mm -hmm. I noticed when you were reading the prayer earlier mm -hmm. 
that there was a real softening to your voice, and mm-hmm. your eyes got a little bit, little bit watery, and I could see a gentleness come out of you. I can rarely read that without crying. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. I mean, yeah. it really does reflect from a tradition that I was not, I did not experience this type of Christianity when I was growing up that much. But it really does reflect what I think is the best part of Christianity, the part that does want to make things better. And I think all true spirituality has something that I can connect to if I'm willing to look for it. And I have no, this is beautiful. This is the way that the world ought to be. Mm-hmm. And um, on my good days, I do some of that. Mm-hmm. How has clearing the channel changed you then as a recovering alcoholic? What's the, what's the big take home today for, for Nathan? Mm. Well, I do tend to have a slightly lower opinion of my opinions. It's <laughs> progress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tend to um, not fly off the handle so much. Uh, the meditation gives me that extra space between the thoughts so that when I think of something, I don't just have to do it. And I think that using these techniques, which are also very, uh, the big book would, I think, uses the term ego deflating. But I think it's more just not being ruled by my thoughts. Um, I think that when I think less, I behave better. Um, I don't get stuck in doing things that I would have gotten stuck doing before. It doesn't work all the time. I still have days when it's difficult to get out of the house. I still have days when the bill goes on the desk instead of gets opened, you know. But they're less, and um, they seem less dire. <laughs> you know, they, they're they not the big thing hanging over you that they were. Hmm. Does that yeah. answer your question? And I suppose at a real pragmatic level, you never got a fourth DUI. You? I, you know, I'm, I will take that. <laughs> I will take that. And how long has it been? Uh, it was 14 years. And uh, I'm enormously grateful that it worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I was a very good candidate for recovery when I first came in. I don't think anybody is a very good candidate for mm-hmm. recovery when they first come in. Some people have fallen so low that they don't think there's any help, any help or hope for them. And some haven't fallen low enough, so they don't think they need it. Yeah. And that is a really, there's a sweet spot in the middle where you um, are willing to do to change things and have a sense that they can help mm-hmm. and um, I'm very grateful that it worked out the way it did you've found a remarkable path Nathan ah, well thank you yeah. thanks for spending some time with us this was awesome thank you for doing this it's a pleasure thanks for joining us in this episode of Progressive Recovery which is available at progressiverecovery.org and on iTunes <laughs>